that was awkward. <laughs> How do you hug a guy that big, you know? Try hugging a wall, it's similar. Um, it's so good to be here. Um, like Rob said, my name is Paul. My wife, Jenny, is here with me, sitting over there. Wife of, we're coming up on 23 years, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, how about that? That's worth clapping about, yeah. Um, Michael and Lisa Lisi are here. He's the salt director, and his wife, their kids are at home. And we've been hanging out at Madison. It is crazy, the story of God's faithfulness to Jenny and I, to the network we've been a part of. Started, I came to know Jesus in Fallon, Nevada, of all places, an hour from Reno. Her father was the one who led me to faith. And four years after that, on the same day, but four years later, he gave me her arm in marriage, and we have started our journey together that way. But God has done so much at Iowa State, Ames, Iowa, planting a church called Cornerstone, a church that's planting other churches. Like Rob said, we went to plant at UNI in Cedar Falls, the Cedar Valley area there, are going to Florida. And um, it's so cool being here. So many students are here from many different campuses to help start this church. It's just been so fun. It's like a reunion celebration of what God's doing at the next place. And I'm telling you, I love Madison. I mean, this is my first, our family's vacationed up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, different things over the years. You always want to head out of Iowa, but um, how fun to be in this area. It's beautiful. We're outside. I mean, we're finally like enjoying the fall and uh, it's crazy. We were downtown uh, just the other day, farmer's market. It's like this idyllic kind of scene until a blizzard hits, <laughs> right? You know, if Florida ever was going to sound good, it's like in contrast to the blizzard that hits when you're trying to, but, but seriously, the farmer's market was amazing. And even the night before we're up basically at a campsite on top of a building. It's called, uh, what is it, uh, Camp Triple Indy? You, have you gone there, right? So we're basically doing an outdoor like camp scene at this restaurant and just captured by Madison because while we're there loving it, eating dinner, there's like the homecoming parade, like way to go Badgers, like sticking it to Illinois. Like the homecoming parade is happening down there. It's like a Hallmark TV show is being shot. I mean, all the school spirit, we're up there, the fire going, I'm like, Madison, man, how about that? You know, so what a cool place to be, been loving it. And uh, sorry about the Brewers, but you know, hey, at least, uh, at least the Badgers won, right? I mean, the hotel I'm in, it's all sports. I mean, it was all red one day. Now it's go pack. I, it, it is fun to be a part of this kind of pride. But guys, God is doing a lot and he is planting churches and it's the most exciting thing to be a part of to see the gospel advance one place at a time. And I want you to know that in the midst of celebration, in the midst of just a sense of victory, you are in a fight, the fight of your lives where there is a real devil who knows you, hates you, wants to take you down, wants to ruin your dreams, your family, your hope, your marriage. And uh, when I think of fights, before I get into this passage that will teach us how to fight, I think of um, a fight that I've studied a bit that captured my heart. It was a fight that went down on foreign soil in Afghanistan, actually in 2005. It was part of the Red Wings operation where there were some SEALs heading in under the cloak of darkness, they were inserted at night, and their operation was to take out a number of high-level um, Af Afghani, just kind of high-level targets, and they were trying to set up in a sniper position. And in this, this fight for their lives, these four men, uh, Michael McMurphy, Daniel Dietz, 
Acts, and then a guy named Marcus Luttrell, a movie would come out later, a book would come out later, Lone Survivor. These four men were in a position ready to do the job they were sent there to do when their position was compromised by goat herders that just moved through that area while they were under this, this kind of, you know, set up to take their shots. And their position being compromised, they had a decision to make. Do we, do we kill these innocent civilians, these goat herders, or do we let them go and perhaps get found out? They let them go, and within minutes, they were under enemy fire missiles, so like 100 or 200 Taliban warriors. I mean, there they were four guys with weapons trying to fight off innumerable odds. Everything was against them, not just machine guns. It was mortar fire. It was uh, RPG fire, and they were fighting for their lives. Every one of these men would go on to die except Marcus Luttrell, right, the lone survivor. And I, as I've read this story, watched it, studied it, looked into how these men fought, Marcus Luttrell comments on how in the midst of the battle, he always had his weapon, his gun with him. And I mean, the battle got crazy. There were times where their position was so under fire, they literally would leap backwards, pinballing down rocks, breaking themselves up, many of them shot through already, fighting till the very end, pinballing through this. I mean, Mark Luttrell, at one point, he was going down these boulders. He broke his back and his pelvis. They all continued to fight. Then they're dragging themselves along. There was another time when an RPG round comes in. It would take the life of one of his SEAL uh, brothers at that point. But that blast would launch him back down another mountain during this fall, he would slam his face into a boulder, breaking his nose. It would knock him unconscious. The blast alone tore off his gear, tore off his pants. Like He found himself down the mountain, having his face hit in, bit off his tongue, swallowed, swallowed half his tongue. He comes to just a bloody mess. He had lost all of his comrades, right, his brothers in arms. And then miracle of miracle, after descending so far down a mountain tumbling, he would look over and like within arm reach, there was his weapon. He always had his weapon with him. And then just trying to stay alive. He wanted to die. And at that point, broken legs, broken pelvis, broken nose, just tore up. Probably, I think, riddled at that time with gunfire. He reached out with a rock and drew a line on the ground and said, I will do all that I can to drag my body across that line or I will die trying. And he would drag his body across that line. And when he got across that line, he would reach out with his hand, with his rock, and draw another line and said, I will do all I can to drag myself across that line or I will die trying. And he repeated that process for seven miles. He drug himself, broken back, pelvis, smashed face, staying alive with one weapon that never left his side. And it was his machine gun, though down to one clip and 11 rounds. It was the one weapon he had in the fight. This morning, you're in the fight for your lives. Your marriage is in a fight, all your dreams and your hopes, your purity, all that you want and all that you value, you're in a fight for your lives. And this morning, we're gonna see how Jesus fought, how he fought victoriously. God has not given you only one weapon like he had, he's given you two weapons. And this morning, we open our Bibles to see Jesus fight the fight to truly be the lone survivor and set a pace and set a pattern for us so that we could walk in victory. 
So if you've got a Bible or if you've got it on your app, open up to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're at in the scriptures this morning. Luke 4, you guys have been going through the book of Luke already, so this is nothing new. Unless you're here for the first time, this church is about teaching the Bible, God's word given to us. So Luke 4 is where we're starting. And in my Bible, the kind of title to the top of this part is called The Temptation of Jesus. I'll give some context after I read the first verse or two. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says this. Then Jesus returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And it says he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. I want to stop just there. The context that we find in even that first verse sets the stage for everything. So I want to slow down and take it even phrase by phrase. We see that Jesus had just returned from the Jordan. So you'd have to listen to Ronnie's message, I think, given last week, talking about what was going on there. The Jordan was a very lush location, the Jordan River, you know, just this beautiful area where Jesus had just been baptized. John the baptizer was there. He was baptizing everyone who was getting ready to follow this Jesus. Many of them had not met him yet, but they were getting their hearts ready to follow Jesus. And it was at that Jordan River that Jesus himself shows up. And at that river, he identified himself. Satan already already knew who he was, but you can't put a target on yourself any bigger than this one when you say, behold, this is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so now the focus of the devil is on him perhaps in greater intensity than ever before, but the context is when he had returned from the Jordan, he had just gotten done getting baptized, was identified in front of everyone. Now the Bible says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. First off, he was filled by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Luke, you see this phrase repeated many times, the orientation around the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In fact, John the baptizer, the Holy Spirit was on him. Zechariah prophesied. Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, was empowered by the Spirit. Uh, You had Simeon, that elderly man at the temple who was moved by God to speak, moved by the Holy Spirit. So you have so much about the Holy Spirit going on in the book of Luke. A lot of attention on not just Father, not just Son, but the Holy Spirit. Now, some are uncomfortable by that. Some have maybe grown up in church backgrounds where the Holy Spirit is like scary talk. You saw some YouTube clip, you know, where people are barking in the Spirit. You know, they're getting slain in the spirit. Like crazy weird things are being attributed to the Holy Spirit. And they're like, ah, you know what? Uh, not so much for me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm a little more comfortable with Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Can we just rewrite the Trinity? Because there's a lot of weird stuff associated with the spirit. That's not what we see in the Bible, but that's what's out there in culture. Don't be afraid of that. God's not like that. He's not to be feared or to be scared of. of. Here, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And when phrases are repeated in your Bible, God is trying to teach us something. He's trying to draw our attention to something very important. Full of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see three different verses in our short text where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. You cannot win in this fight without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was in the wilderness being led by God's spirit. Now get this, God is not going to tempt him, yet the Holy Spirit of God was leading him to a place where he would be tempted by the devil. He still allows this to happen. God's not gonna overwhelm you with temptation. He's not gonna let you be tempted beyond what you can handle, but he's going to allow you to be tempted. And so now full of the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Every Jew who heard the number 40 went, wait, wait, 40. 40 stuck out to all of them because 40 was the number that connected them to their past that was full of failure. See, the Jews so many years before that were, were called to go in and take this land that God had given them. But the vast majority, in fact, all except a couple of them, just buckled under fear. And so for 40 years, God had them wander around the desert, 40 years until every one of their bodies would drop dead. The number 40 corresponded to utter failure in their lives, where because of fear and marked by a time of just sinful rebellion, God waited patiently 40 years for every last one of their disobedient hearts just to drop dead. And then he would lead people in. So get this, right from the start, God's people had only been known by sin and failure. Here comes the one, the one with victory in his stride, the son of God, filled with the spirit of God, who would take on that number 40, not 40 years, no, in 40 days he would do what Israel could not do. Where their life had been marked by failure, Jesus, the triumphant son of God, was going to go head to head with the devil and we will see him walk out of the other side of this wilderness in power and in victory and in sinless perfection, inspiring our hearts, follow him. He was sent to do what we could never do. We would have failed like the Jews in the desert as well. Jesus was sent to do what we couldn't do. He inspires us, our following and our hearts, our, they, they want to follow him. And so he is led in for these 40 days of testing to come out the other end victorious. And make no mistake, he was tempted by the devil. Now, weapon number one, I, maybe even before I get you to the weapons here, let, let me just show you a picture. When I think of, oh man, 40 days in a desert, what would that look like? Guys, take a look at this. This is, this is no uh, holiday, right? This isn't Madison. This isn't the lake that I walked around. This wasn't a farmer's market. This is, this is like stark, bad place to be. In fact, there's another picture, I think. There's a monastery built, I think, where people believe the temptation could have taken place. So when you hear 40 days in the wilderness, don't think Door County, <laughs> you know, don't think the UP, like don't think some beautiful place where you want to like go, go hiking or where I've taken my kids, pop up tent trails or whatever. I mean, think this, think barren wasteland. And now add to that 40 days of fasting. And this is where Jesus goes head to head with the devil. Weapon number one, I said that Marcus Luttrell had a weapon by his side allowing him to be the lone survivor. Let me just say this. Weapon number one is this. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit when he went into battle. Now you see that orientation. I already said we see that several times in our passage. I'll point it out as we go through. This orientation around being filled with the Holy Spirit is something we need to learn about because look, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life first thing that we need to know is the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. And I just want to pause on this part of our passage just to teach us a couple things about the Holy Spirit. Number one, you cannot go to heaven without the Holy Spirit in your life. It is the Holy Spirit that makes a person spiritually alive. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter three. This will be on the screen. The Bible teaches us that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. I want to stop there. Simply put, flesh gives birth to flesh. That is, people make people. 
People get together and make people. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, call your mom, you know, right after the message. She'll explain it. She might use birds and bees. But like people make people, okay? But it is the spirit that gives birth to the spirit. Here's what we mean. Every person's room is physically alive. You could reach on over, take someone's pulse, might freak you out if you can't find it at first. But like everyone right now, you have bias, physical life. But no one begins with Zoe, spiritual life. In fact, you begin life as the walking dead, <laughs> the living dead, alive physically and dead spiritually. You need God to bring you to life spiritually. Some of you have had that experience where you've put your trust in Jesus Christ alone so that he would take the judgment of your sin. You've invited him to come into your life and you are, as the Bible says, born again. You've had like a second birth, spiritually, not physically. Spiritually, you've had another birth. That's what has to happen. So the Bible teaches that someone needs to have spiritual life and the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual life. Perhaps today is the day that happened that will happen for you like happened to me so many years ago in my senior year of high school where I put my trust in Jesus and God came to live inside me. My spirit became alive because his spirit came to live in me. Perhaps today you'll be born again. Be the best day of your life. But the spirit, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. So we need to know that. We need to just recognize that. And some are wondering, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I don't sing with excitement. Maybe that's why I don't hate sin. Maybe that's why I don't like want to know what my Bible's about. Maybe that's why I'm more excited about Wisconsin winning than I am about the kingdom of God winning. Maybe that's why I'm more excited about what I get to do in this lifetime than how this life might count for the life to come. Maybe it's because you have no spiritual life in you. Stop trying to work harder. Humble yourself before God. When he comes to live in you, you almost can't but live differently for him. So the spirit comes, the spirit gives us spiritual life. And this was Jesus full of the spirit, full of spiritual life. But not only that, not only does the Holy Spirit give spiritual life, look at this, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual power. So when the Bible talks about Jesus was in the power of the spirit, he is setting an example for every Christ follower to live in. We were meant to live in the power, not of ourselves, but the power of another, the power of the Holy Spirit to help illustrate what I mean by this. Listen to how this other Christian, his name's Paul in the Bible, he wrote a letter to some other guys to help them walk with God. Listen to what he said in this letter, Ephesians 5.18. Paul writes, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Let me just pause. There is a parallel being made between getting drunk and walking with God. <laughs> Did you catch that? In the beginning, it says, don't get drunk with wine. Well, why not? It leads to reckless actions. Now that makes sense right? I'm driving through the streets of Madison. I'm looking at the big line outside the bar, right? People eager to do what I was eager to do before I knew Jesus. I didn't like the taste of cheap beer, and I certainly didn't like the taste of hard alcohol. It was a means to an end. To get drunk, to get to that place of numbness, get, it was like wide open doors to do what I thought would satisfy my heart, and interestingly, left me physically sick, 
ashamed of something I couldn't talk to my parents about, and filled with regret. But no mistake, I mean, I thought it would bring pleasure. The, the idea of filling myself with alcohol was so that I would lead to reckless actions. That's what's going on all around us, right? That's, that's the lie that some of us have believed. But notice this, God makes a parallel with that. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to, to godless, reckless actions. Instead, look at this, be filled by the Spirit. And then when you're filled by the Spirit, oh, you speak to another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, even boldness, even the ability to fight the devil. It's found, it's, it's found in the overflow of being empowered by the Spirit. So how is alcohol being compared to the Holy Spirit? Not in quantity consumed, but in controlling influence. So with the Holy Spirit, it's not an issue of quantity, it's an issue of control. It's not like, oh, I need to fill like, I'm getting empty. I need more and more of the Holy Spirit. No, once you have him, he's all yours. It's living under his control, under his reign, under his rule. Maybe think remote control car. It moves when it's directed. God is wanting to direct the lives of Christ followers, empower them. He does that through his Holy Spirit. Being under the control of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit isn't like my car running on empty with gas. It needs more gas to function. No, think of it more like a sailboat in the water. The power of the wind doesn't come from any of us. The best we can do is hoist the sail and capture the strength that's not from within us and be blown in the direction that wind is going. That, that is a, a picture of what it means to be empowered by the Spirit that is not within us, but it is God's Spirit that comes to empower us. So just on the very front end of this passage before, when we're just about to get into the temptations of Christ, know this, weapon number one is the Spirit of God. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let me read the first temptation and we'll pretty quickly see our next weapon. Let, let me read the next few verses. Jump with me back in, in verse two, kind of the second part of verse two. 40 days tempted by the devil. It says this about Jesus. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So, so see this. Satan somehow in the midst of that stark, barren wilderness comes head on head with Jesus, the son of God. I don't know that any of us have gone head to head with Satan himself, though he has a whole demonic realm that he's using to tempt people all the time. I don't know that any of us are that big of a deal where Satan even knows our name. But now Satan is going head on head with Jesus and meets him at a point of weakness. 40 days he's been fasting. And Satan's temptation just challenges that. If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. <laughs> this is easy. This is small stuff for Jesus, right? He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. He certainly can pull this off. This is easy. And yet he doesn't. And I'm, I'm intrigued even by the language. If you're the son of God, I mean any man who gets called out with a challenge like that, like, I just want to fight. I just want to be like, if? Did you say if? No, I, I know you didn't just say if. Because like, it just evokes a response. And yet Jesus, the one who would walk in victory, comes back and says, it is written, 
Man must not live on bread alone. I said that we have two weapons in the fight. Marcus Luttrell had one, it was his gun. Look, we have two weapons. One is we're filled by the Holy Spirit. And number two, weapon number two, Jesus knew the word of God. Jesus knew the word of God. Tell the stone to become bread. Immediately, Jesus had a verse that he knew that he learned at some point from the Bible that corresponded to the temptation. He, he didn't hear that temptation and go, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. No, that would have nothing to do with this temptation. He, he didn't hear that temptation and go, oh, Jesus wept, because that's gonna be in the Bible. No, he, what he did was he knew a verse, a truth of God that perfectly corresponded to the lie that the devil was assaulting him with. And get this, this temptation is subtle. It's a right expectation offered at the wrong time. See, I doubt Satan is going to be so obvious with you that in the middle of a workday, men, some prostitute's gonna walk into our office and say, hey, you want to just ruin your marriage and your family? Like right now, you want to do that? No. Come on. I don't think that obvious. It'll be you actually probably doing some research or whatever, and then just that thing scrolls up on the side. And just, you're just one click away. I mean, it doesn't look that bad. It's kinda, I've been going really strong for a long time. I'll just click. See, Satan's more subtle. And Jesus knows how to correspond to the temptation with the word of God that will meet the need at the exact time. It's what he does. Now look at the next temptation because we're gonna see a pattern emerging here. Temptation number two. So now look at this. So Jesus, uh, verse five, so he took him up, that is Satan took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Showed him all all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Once again, a right expectation at the wrong time. Satan says, and I think because he usurped Adam and Eve in the garden, I think he kind of had this to give. If, if you worship me right now, I will give you the splendor, the authority of all the kingdoms on the earth that, 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 that Satan in an undermined way had captured. It is right that Jesus received the worship and the glory and the splendor of all nations. It's a right expectation to have it at that moment would be to skip the cross. See, at that moment, he would be trading a crown for the cross. But he knew the cross must come first before he would wear the crown and receive the worship that was his. And Satan was offering him something that seemed right, that he should have, that it wasn't the time to have. I think sexual pleasure is like that for us. Sexual pleasure is awesome. It's awesome. And you know what? It builds relationships in the context of marriage. It's a great gift. But sexual pleasure is devastating 
and it destroys relationships and it destroys marriages when it's outside the context of marriage. There are no sins that I regret more in my life than the sexual sins that were a part of my life before I came to know Jesus. And there's no subject that I have more Bible verses memorized on than the subject of sexual sins. Why? Because I still battle so much in my mind and with my eyes to walk in purity. And I don't think I'm gonna stop fighting that until I die and go be with the Lord. And so here the battle is, oh, that's a right desire. It's a right desire. God made us to be sexual beings. We want it at the wrong time and it's devastating. And so Satan is always sneaking in, just like this in the garden of Jesus, and just like us in a quiet moment when we're by ourselves in our dorm rooms or when she's out of town, right? I just heard about a guy I'm getting to know really well, who I love, care for in ministry. And when his wife left with my wife and hundreds of other, in fact, almost 2,000 other wives for an awesome women's conference, he got on his phone and watched a porn video. I went, oh. by God's grace, I didn't. Because in these moments, Satan is always offering more, always offering something, a right pleasure in the wrong way at the wrong time. And oh, that he would have followed Jesus' example in that moment. It is written and quoted verses from the Bible, can we? And so you see the pattern begin to emerge, right? Satan attacks, and we're gonna get into this in real practical ways. Satan attacks in Jesus, in the power of the spirit, and quoting scripture, those are the weapons he uses to walk in victory. And I just wanna hit pause and just talk about us. How is the devil attacking you? Let me put it a different way. What kind of lies does the devil whisper in your ear in a quiet moment? I remember one guy leading a staff team. I've copied this myself with staff teams, or at least a staff team. In leading a staff team, he handed out three by five cards, and he says, what is a lie that is being whispered in your ear from the enemy? Yeah, if I only weighed this much less, I would finally be thought of as special and be wanted, or well, if I, if I, I'm tempted to think, if I just clicked on this and looked at that, finally my desire for sexual, it would be, if I had her, if I had him, if I made a little bit more, if, if I just write it down. What are the lies that you're tempted to believe? What are the lies that are being whispered? And everyone wrote those down. And then this is what he did. Okay, and now we're gonna go around and read those out loud. And when people did, and were that vulnerable, everyone else could speak the truth of God's word into that person's life and say, the next time he whispers that, quote this passage. Go to this place in the scripture. I used to be crippled by that also. These are the words of God that helped me. And they began to minister in life-giving ways. See, we need to go there. Are you so private? Are you so personal that you would be content living in your failure by yourself? 
That's, that's pride. We need to go there. We need to be open. We need to share. This is the kind of stuff I hear and I fail. Okay, what is it? Students, you know, my daughter, Ellie, I have three kids, Josiah, Ellie, and Claire. Two of them are in college. One's about to graduate. I'm not checking my phone. I'm actually bringing up a text that she uh, sent me. Ellie is tempted to be proud. I pray for her regularly, and one of the things I pray for is humility. She's just so awesome and so mature and, like, just goes after life. But she can be tempted then to look down on everyone else who's maybe not as spiritual or whatever, not as where she's at. And I'm like, oh, Ellie, I want you to grow in humility. It's one of my prayer requests for her. Listen to what she texted me this past week about this pride, this sizing people up. You know how it is. Someone walks in the room, you got them figured out right away. I mean, you know why you're better than them. You look down on them very quickly. That's in me. It's in her too. She says this. She wrote, the girl came for the first time. She's talking about a girl in our connection group. Ellie's a freshman at University of Iowa. This girl came for the first time and she just got out of the hospital because she was suicidal. She was sharing how God was working in her heart in amazing ways. And still, it was easy for me to doubt her story and think that she was faking it or something. I was so tempted to look down on her. I was so tempted to look down on her purely because I doubted that God could work that fast in someone's heart. It was all too easy for me to look right through how God had saved her from killing herself and judge her based on the time it took her to come to terms with God. It's so easy to be tempted to doubt God's work just because you think you know what God can do, but he works in ways you would never imagine. I learned that well that night. You know, Ellie not only was convicted and shared that with me, then she shared a verse that she was memorizing to help her not look down on others, but to believe that God can change anyone's life. And sometimes in a moment, I thought, man, Ellie is now armed for that fight when the devil comes whispering in her ears. What is it, parents? You know what, parents? It is right that you should be honored and you should be obeyed by your kids. That is a right thing. Right expectation, guess what? It ain't happening all the time, right? So we're tempted to go, well, I'm not honored. You wanna talk to me like that? Well, I'll raise my voice. I'll bow up. I'll get angry at my kids. We are tempted to justify our sin because of theirs. Dads are tempted like I was and I failed so often to be angry at their kids. Moms are tempted to just blow up, pull out their hair, yell at their kids, whatever, express their rage. Now, not when other mothers are around. No, no. That's when they just do the pinch. (laughs) you know, or the, the scowl, you know, and then they look back, you know, like, like, you know how to negotiate your sin in public, right? Yeah, we figured that out. Our kids aren't so good at that. And so we find ways of blowing up at them. Guys, I'm telling you in those moments, I need to know Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. It's an emotion. In my anger, don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on my anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. If I've blown it, don't give the devil an opportunity. Go back and ask forgiveness. In those moments, I need to know Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Like in that moment where you're so mad at them, don't overwhelm them. 
I can think faster, and I can talk faster, and I can talk louder, and I'm bigger, and in that moment, I can overwhelm the heart of a four-year-old boy. Just silence them. And oh, that I would have known that verse and obeyed it. In the moment, had a verse. Wives, you should be cherished. You should be tenderly loved by your husbands. It's a right expectation. And you know what it's like to be taken for granted. But in that moment, it does not then give you permission to be so rude towards this one who is a flawed man, but God is saying, follow his leadership. In that moment, it's not therefore your right to just withhold yourself physically from him. Make him pay. Or you know what? I'll treat him like the biggest boy in this family. I'll talk about him down to him like he was the biggest child in this family. And when he's not around, you should hear what I say to the other ladies. That gossip, that hurt, won't bless your marriage. I'm not justifying him not being the man God has called him to be, but you need Ephesians 5 running through your mind. You need Colossians 3 right there on the tip of your tongue so that you would have God's power to know what marriage ought to look like. First Peter 3, even when he is not being the man God has called him to be. Students, it's a right desire for physical pleasure. But a great gift from God is a terrible God when you're a slave to it. And you know what? Sexual pleasure, having a job someday, being married someday, having a kid someday, great gifts, terrible gods. And this world that you're in right now at the university scene is dripping with sensuality. And all of it is saying, you do whatever you want, you define it whatever way you want it, and you give yourself the pleasure. In fact, the only sin in it is forcing yourself to do something with someone who doesn't want it also. Now, beyond that, men, women, it all blurs together. It's whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, so long as you don't violate them. That'd be the only sin. God's commands were never meant to be burdensome to you. They were meant to give you freedom and life. The fire I enjoyed at the top of the building, it was great. Warmed my hands. It was awesome. That same fire could torch that building and kill everyone in it. The context is a fireplace. The context to enjoy fire is a fireplace. The context to enjoy sex is marriage. That's a place of safety. And you need to know verses. You need to have them in your mind. When you're tempted to think, oh, having the job, having the spouse, having the water, there will be my pleasure. Like even Michael taught on from the Bible out of John 6, you need to hear Jesus in your mind and respond to the devil. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I am holding on to Jesus. I'm not giving in to a lesser pleasure because I am holding out for what is most delightful. That is the honor of God. That is the enjoyment of him. That is not choosing to look at women like they're objects, but treating them like sisters and cherishing them and knowing how to live under control in these years. So you can be a blessing to a wife and a family 
in the years ahead of you. No, God is not limiting your pleasure. He is securing it. We need to know how to fight temptation. For me, you know what? The lies that are being whispered in my mind more in my life now are not one so much of just visual pleasure. It's one of sometimes my mind just wanders. Sometimes I just want you to look at me and say, man, you're an awesome pastor. When I was little, I was looking for the pleasure of my father, saying, great job. And now I find myself looking for others. I need to go to Jesus and go, it's enough to be loved by you. Let me hit the last temptation. The last temptation is this. Verse 9 So Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time Then Jesus returned to Galilee, look at this again, in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being acclaimed by everyone. The third temptation is subtly different. Did you catch it? Here comes a temptation. Jesus quotes the Bible and what does Satan do? Satan quotes scripture. Satan quotes the Bible right back at him. You see, the devil's been around for a while. He, he knows the Bible even better than we know it. Now he quotes the Bible. He tries to get him off track. And yet Jesus clearly again quotes scripture, knowing the, the abuse, the, the temptation for the, the crown without the cross and says, do not test the Lord your God. And Jesus walked through victorious. What kind of lie was the desperate the devil whispering in the ear of my friend who was a co-pastor when he said, I know you're married, happily married. Just text that lady and just begin to stir up affections towards another woman. And now he's no longer in ministry. What kind of lie was the devil whispering in the ears of another co-pastor that I've pastored with over the years when he said, don't talk to people about your financial struggles and don't talk to people about your sexual failures and don't talk to people about the secrets and the lies. No, the best thing you could do for your wife, Allison, the best thing you could do for your little boys who are looking at you, the best thing you can do for the church that you just preached to the night before is to go out the next day and kill yourself. What kind of lies was D.B. Antrim hearing in his head when he took his life and broke our hearts? telling you through the midst of those lies though all of us at some point fails every one of us like the Israelites 40 years I don't need 40 years I've fallen again and again and again in the midst of all of our failure Jesus heads through he always uses the weapon of the spirit he always quotes the scripture and though we have failed a thousand times over Jesus walks in victory and I'm telling you we serve a God who was victorious for us. In the midst of our failure, don't stay there. Know that by putting your faith in Christ, you too 
share in his victory. He went triumphantly to the cross. He did what you and I could not do. He never failed, though we have and have regrets to last us a lifetime. Jesus went through the wilderness. Jesus never gave in to the devil, and he went straight to the cross. We celebrate his death on the cross, and rightly so. Rarely do we celebrate his righteous life, always doing the right thing, never saying yes to the wrong thing. Live he did righteously, die he did sacrificially, and Jesus Christ secures a place of both Lord and Savior in the hearts of any of us who would come to him and say, Jesus, you were victorious, and I have proved nothing but failure. I deserve judgment, but you came that I would have life. And to you I come this morning, in this room, and at this time, to be forgiven by a holy God. So that, I don't deserve, so that I don't get the wrath I deserve forever in hell, but I get forgiveness. Guys, let's turn to that God now as we pray. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for fighting in the power of your spirit and with your word. God, would you help every man and woman here fight in the power of the spirit and according to your word. But God, this morning we know, as soon as I even begin to illustrate, we know that we actually connect more with failure than we do with success. And so we turn our hearts towards you, Jesus, and we see that this triumphant one was victorious in our failure. And you went to the cross, and in death, which seemed a victory, you secured our victory, which was our forgiveness. And we celebrate that this morning. God, I pray for any man or woman who has never yet put their faith in you. They are spiritually alive and they are, or they are physically alive. They're spiritually dead this morning. I pray that today they would become spiritually alive by asking you to forgive them. And I pray this in your name. Amen. The band is going to continue to lead.